0: The Latin word for priest is pontifex. And quite frankly, the word pontifex in Latin literally means bridge builder. A priest is one who has been given the assignment of building a bridge between God and man. What we know from reading the Bible is that God was the one who instituted the priesthood. Now imagine this. Most other concepts of God is that God is a God who is remote and not personal. A God who does not care about relating to man whatsoever. One to whom man must offer all kinds of sacrifices in order to hopefully make himself right with God. But what we see in the scriptures is that our God is a God who initiated relationship with man to begin with. For one of the reasons that God created you and created me is so that he could have fellowship with us. But like our progenitor Adam, we sinned, and our relationship with God consequently was broken. But what has God done? God has established in the Old Testament order a priesthood in order to put man back together with Him. God and man are put together through the priesthood in order that we in the Old Testament way of thinking at least, could have someone who could enter into the holy place for us because our sin prevented our ability to enter into the holy place. Someone who could make peace with God for us via our sacrifices. Now, most of you are familiar with the concept of Yom Kippur, which is the high holy day among the Jews. It literally means the day of atonement. The details of how that day was to be executed or given to us in the book of Leviticus, the 16th chapter. I'll I'll try to summarize them for us at this point. Once a year, on the tenth day of the seventh month, the high priest, initially that was Aaron and his descendants, the high priest would prepare himself to make sacrifice for all the sins that Israel had committed the previous year. The way he would do that, he would first have to prepare himself. He would get a bull, and the bull was sacrificed. He would take some of the blood of the bull, and when he would go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, he would sprinkle some of the blood of that bull on the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was the part of the Ark of the Covenant which was made of solid gold. And it was a lid. It was distinct from the rest of the mercy seat in that it was not attached. And it was here that you remember that the two cherubim would look down upon that particular part of the Ark of the Covenant. They represent God in this case, and they represent God's viewing the atonement which was being made, the price which was being paid for the previous year's sacrifices. Now, after the high priest had sacrificed the blood of a bull on his own behalf, because he had to be made right before he could give a sacrifice that would pay for the sins of Israel for the previous year, he would also take the blood of a goat which he had slain. And he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on that same mercy seat. The reason being, that was to symbolize the paying for the sins of Israel from the previous year. But if you're familiar with the book of Leviticus chapter 16 and this practice on the Day of Atonement, you'll also know there was a second goat. And after the priest had gone in and had offered the blood of a bull for his... On atonement of sin and the blood of a goat for the sins of israel for the previous year he would go back out and there was a man who had been assigned the responsibility of taking this goat his name was azazel in hebrew which interpreted means scapegoat this is where the idea by the way of scapegoat originates and what the priest would do after having given The blood sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. The priest would take his hands, place his hands upon the head of that goat, and he would recite all the sins of Israel from the previous year. Now, there's no indication in Scripture how long that took, but I'm sure it took quite a while. As he would recite those sins, and then the assigned man would take the goat, and then he would take the goat off into the wilderness. And as that goat was being led away... The whole congregation of Israel, imagine this, over 600,000 men, plus their wives and children, would observe the taking away of this goat into the wilderness until finally the goat was just a speck on the horizon and then the goat was gone. Do you see the symbolism represented in the taking away of the goat into the wilderness? It's obvious that the symbolism is that through the shedding of blood of the one goat, the sins of Israel, which had been confessed and repented of, now were being taken away, completely out of sight. And let me interject at this point, not merely out of the sight of the people of Israel, as important as that would be. It was critically important that they understood that their sins had been paid for, and their sins had been taken completely out of their own sight and out of their own mind. But more importantly, they knew what the Word of God teaches, that their sin had not only been removed from their own thought processes, but also from the mind of God. God had taken them completely away. The Old Testament priesthood represented most forcefully in the person of Aaron Mm -hmm. as he would go through this ritual on an annual basis on Yom Kippur. This priesthood was designed by God to teach Israel... That God is a God of holiness. That God has a dimension in His personality that we rarely hear anything about in today's church. He is also a God who is a wrathful God. He says their sins will not go unpunished. I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He wanted the people of Israel to know, just like He wants you and me to know, That the wrath of God is coming someday because of our sin and because of the sins of Israel. The wrath of God is coming. But, of course, as I've already mentioned, it is God who takes the initiative. Now, this passage of Scripture, which we just read together a bit earlier, is one of those passages of Scripture that really tests us in terms of how we think. We have to engage our minds to try to grasp all this information that is given in Hebrews chapter 7 about this mysterious figure known as Melchizedek. One who has no genealogy. One who has no beginning and has no end. One who holds a perpetual priesthood. One who has no father and has no mother. Those Particular aspects of his personality have led some to suggest that Melchizedek was actually Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. But I don't think that's true because Jesus had a mother, right? Mary was his mother. But what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to communicate to us is Jesus' priesthood is similar to the priesthood of Melchizedek, not the priesthood of Aaron. How frequently did Aaron and his successors have to go in to the Holy of Holies and atone for the sins of Israel? How often? Once a year. They had a perpetual priesthood in the sense that they had to go in once a year. But they finally died, right? And that's why there had to be a bunch of priests, as we read in this passage of Scripture. But Jesus' priesthood is different. It would be better if I were to say, Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. That's why in verse 25, where we're going to focus our attention today, the way in which the writer of Hebrews begins the verse is with the word hence. Some translations translate that word, and rightly so, therefore. It's been said that whenever you run across the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask the question, what is it therefore? Because it suggests that what is about to be said depends upon what has just preceded. For instance, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. The therefore is referring to everything which is preceded in the first 11 chapters of Romans. In this case, it's everything which has gone before in the first 24 chapters. 24 verses, rather, of the book of Hebrews. Now, this verse, verse 25, breaks down neatly into three basic truths or premises. The first is this. Jesus is able to save forever. That's good news, isn't it? Another thing that is suggested is Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. And the third thing is that this eternal intercession... And eternal salvation are for those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. His intercession and this salvation is not for everyone. It's only for those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a cause and effect relationship which is suggested in verse 25. The first is the cause or the effect. Jesus is able to save forever. Why is he able to save forever? Because he always lives to make intercession for us. Now, this is an important point and maybe the thesis of what this passage of Scripture would seek to speak to us today. Very simply put, our future salvation depends on Christ's future intercession. That seems so innocent in its sounding. But it's so profound as we're going to see. This raises a question which I'll seek to answer and let the Word of God answer for us, and then it leads to a statement. The first is the question, What are we being saved from? Well, let's let the Word of God answer that question. When the angel of the Lord came to Joseph, and he told him not to leave Mary, in Matthew's Gospel, what we hear the angel saying, You shall call his name Jesus. For it is He who will save His people from their, what, sins. So, what are we being saved from? We're being saved from our sins. Paul says essentially the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, It is a trustworthy statement demanding full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to save us. Well... There are two dimensions of the saving work of Christ in our lives. There is a now dimension and there is a then dimension. Now, think with me just a moment. Remember what Jesus says in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. What is eternal life? Is it a future possession of those who believe in Jesus and him who sent Or is it a present possession? It is a present possession. We've been so conditioned to think of eternal life as something that's out there without realizing that eternal life is something that is in here. It's now. Eternity has broken into history in the person of Jesus as He has come to live in our lives. Now, what difference does that make to us now? Well, it makes a great deal of difference. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, This is what the Bible says. That the person who is born of God does not practice sin. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. Now, is there anyone here who's been born of God who has practiced sin since we last met? I have. Thank you for your honesty. Yes, I have. But what... This verse of Scripture is saying is that it's not advocating the fact that you'll be sinlessly perfect. What it does say, though, is your lifestyle will be bent, whereas before receiving Christ in His seed, that's what Christ is referred to in that verse, and His seed abides in Him. That means the seed of God in Jesus abides in you by His Spirit. Before we received Christ, our main bent was toward sinning, practicing sin. Whereas now having received Christ, where is our main bent? It has been in the direction of obeying the Lord and honoring the Lord. So what difference does it make that Christ has saved me from my sin in this life? It makes a huge difference. It makes all the difference in the world between a life that's lived selfishly and a life which is lived to honor God. God desires that we live a life which honors Him, that is not characterized by practicing sin. But the Bible also suggests that he saves us from our sins, which has a future dimension or aspect as well. The wages of sin is death. Now, what do you suppose that suggests? Well, it means physical death because we know from Romans chapter 5, if Adam had not sinned, death would not have entered the world. Physical death is a symbol or... The natural outcome of spiritual death. But it means more than that. It means spiritual death. Which leads me to make a statement that may be a surprise to you. And you may find yourself instantly disagreeing with it. But we're going to see what the Bible says at this point. The main thing that Jesus is saving us from is the wrath of God. He is saving us from the wrath to come. Now, wrath of God has two dimensions, just like the salvation of God has two dimensions. One dimension is now. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, this is what the Bible says. For the wrath of God is now being revealed. I'm interpreting here, but it's a present tense verb. Is now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there is a sense in which God's wrath is now being experienced by people who do not know Jesus. That wrath is being expressed. And it's being expressed in the consequences of their rebellion. We know that... Sin is pleasant for a season, according to the book of Hebrews. But we also know that sin has consequences. When we sin, we have to pay the consequences of our sin. We see that all around us in people's lives who, as young people, may have lived a life of wanton sin. But as middle-aged people or elderly people, now they're paying the price of a life that had been lived in rebellion. And this is the wrath of God that has come upon them. Now, let me ask you this question. Does God want to express wrath on you and on me? To whom must the responsibility be given for the wrath that comes upon me? It's because of my own rebellion against God. It's because of my own refusal to believe and to obey God that I experience the wrath of God to any degree in this life, or you do, or in the life to come. But the other dimension of the wrath of God is regarding the future. So turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10:28. 10, Jesus is speaking. He says, "Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Now, this would suggest what the Old Testament writers knew. The fear of man brings a snare. It's a temporary snare, however. It's not one that's going to last forever because the Bible says in Psalm 56, When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? What is the worst that mortal man can do to you or to me? If we're in Christ, the very worst that anyone can do to us on the natural level is to kill us. But that is only the killing of the body and not the soul, which is the most important part of who we are. It's our soul that's the most important part of who we are. Now, let's read the rest of verse 28. But rather, fear Him, and the New American Standard Bible rightly capitalizes Him. It's referring to God the Father. Rather, fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The word which Jesus uses throughout his gospel teachings for hell is the word Gehenna. It was the best word picture Jesus could get to convey the awfulness of the place known as hell. Gehenna was the valley outside of Jerusalem, outside the walls of the city, which was the garbage dump for Jerusalem. Anything that died other than a human being, the carcass of that thing was taken out and placed in Gehenna. And there was a constant fire which burned there. Remember some of the ways in which Jesus describes hell, Gehenna? It's a place of outer darkness. It's a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping suggests the great sorrow that will be characterized by those who are in hell because of their refusal to give their lives to Jesus, to receive the salvation which Jesus offered them. But also the word gnashing, it does not suggest primarily the idea of agony as much as it suggests the idea of anger. Because the gnashing of the teeth in biblical language suggests anger. There's great anger there. At one and the same time, there is great sorrow over the refusal to receive the gift of eternal life. But there is also the great anger aimed at God. The same kind of anger that characterizes many people in this life in their attitude toward God. But another metaphor that Jesus uses, and he drew it right from Gehenna. He must have seen it with his eyes. And his hearers who had come to Jerusalem had seen it because this fire kept burning all the time. It's where the fire was never quenched. But there were worms there. Maggots would come, excuse me. And they would feed on the decaying carcasses of the animals which had been put there. Now, this is a very graphic and ugly picture to say the least. But it is an effort and a good one at that of our Lord to describe what hell is like and what's going to happen there. According to this verse of Scripture, we need to fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Does this mean that our soul and our body will be annihilated There are some who believe that. Some evangelical Christians, noteworthy, by the way, in their scholarship, who believe that there's coming a time and that time will be the complete elimination of you or me if I am separated from God by my sin. There will be this final destruction of my life in the sense that I will be no more. But I find that a little difficult to believe, although there is great plausibility to it when you listen to their argument. The reason I find that difficult to believe in part, at least, are some of these metaphors I've already mentioned and how they're always described as eternal in nature. But in addition to that, do you know the story that Jesus tells about the rich man and a man named Lazarus? Not to be confused with Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Do you remember that story? And where is, after both of them have died, where is Lazarus, this poor beggar who sat daily at the gate of the rich man as he would leave And the dogs would come and lick his sores. Where was Lazarus in the next life? He was in the bosom of Abraham. He was in paradise. Where was the rich man? Dives is the name that's used to describe him. Where was he? He was in Hades, wasn't he? A great gulf separated them. There was communication which occurred between those two places. There was communication that took place... Yet there was this great gulf that existed there. What was the condition of the man named Dives in Hades? His condition was a very poor condition. He was concerned about his brothers who were still living, wasn't he? In fact, he pled with Father Abraham that he would send back Lazarus to preach the Word of God to them. Right? Isn't that right? But what did... Abraham say if they would if you would not believe the word of God they're not going to believe if someone is resurrected from the dead and is sent back Now turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 And these, verse 9 says, and these, and the these refers to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, they do not believe that Jesus is the way to eternal life. They have not committed themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty penalty of eternal destruction. This is what we might commonly call an oxymoron in English. The words eternal and destruction don't fit together, do they? Because if you destroy something, it's gone. But this speaks of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now, I believe that God is omnipresent. I believe, and you may find this hard to accept, but I believe, and if you follow the logic of what the Bible teaches, I think you would agree, that God is present in His wrath in hell. He is there. But the problem is that people who are in hell cannot respond in faith to the Father. It's no longer possible. So they have no possibility of having a relationship with the Father that extends throughout eternity. Now, the good news for us is that Jesus Christ can save us from the wrath of God because He intercedes for us. Now, think with me a moment. You've done a lot of thinking already this morning. Thank you for hanging in here with me. I hope you're following what the Word of God teaches on this very important matter. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we who believe have received an incomparably great power which God exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what is Jesus doing, being seated at the Father's right hand? Is that a place of honor for Jesus? Well, yes, it is. It is a place of honor. But it's also a place of work for Jesus. We often talk about the finished work of Christ. And when we talk about the finished work of Christ, we're talking about the fact that Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. When He said, it is finished He was saying, I have paid in full for the sins of mankind. And that was verified when he was raised from the dead and finally ascended into heaven. But there is an unfinished work which Jesus is doing and will continue to do forever. And you should be glad and I should be exceedingly glad that he will continue this work forever. It's his work of interceding for me. It's His work of interposing His blood that He shed on the cross, His work on the cross and the resurrection between me and God. He is like a shield between the wrath of God and me. Look at Hebrews again, chapter 10. Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read verses 30 and 31. Now, Hebrews is a sobering book. That's why my sermon file on Hebrews is rather thin. It's very sobering. It's a very challenging book as well. Hebrews 10, 30, and 31 read this way. For we know Him who said, speaking of God, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we don't really appreciate what that says. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God if Jesus is not living to intercede for you. It is a terrible thing. But we, by the grace of God, have our high priest Jesus who has interposed His blood and He intercedes for us wonderfully because of His great love for us. The world's main problem today is not what's going on in the Middle East. It's not a faltering Wall Street. Our main problem is not trouble at home with a wife, a husband, children. Our main problem is how we can get reconciled to God. Do you understand this? This is the most basic problem that you face or I face. How can we be reconciled to God? Because if we are living in a reconciled relationship with God, then we get perspective, first of all, on all that's going on around us. But secondly, what we do is we're able to draw off the power of this living Christ who resides in us and intercedes for us so that we can live a life that's not characterized by sin. Therefore, we can deal with our own little skirmishes in life, our own little wars in life, whether they be at home or at work or at church or wherever we may find them. We can deal properly with them because we have the reconciler in us. And remember what the Word of God says about God. God is a reconciling God. And He has given to us what sort of ministry? He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us the unparalleled privilege of uniting men. We are priests, actually. A different sort of priest, no doubt, than the Old Testament priesthood. But we are a holy priesthood is what the Bible says in First Peter chapter 2. He's given us the unparalleled privilege of linking men up with God. And one of that one aspect of that privilege is in linking our brothers and sisters up with God by letting Christ dominate our relationship in the way in which we relate to Him. Christ enables us to escape what He calls this great, great wrath to come. He refers to it in Matthew 3, verse 7. When He was speaking to a group of people who came to Him, He called them a brood of vipers. They were the religious lot of the day. He said, who warns you to come? So that you could escape so great a wrath to come. Who warned you? Christ has this superior priesthood. Let's look at Second Corinthians chapter 5. And let's begin with verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of Reconciliation. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is not like our protector from God. It's not like God the Father is a bully, and Jesus is keeping the Father away from us. That's not what the Word of God teaches. But what we see in Jesus being the one who is sent to be our intercessor is that Jesus is an expression of God's love to us to rescue us from the wrath of God... And it's necessary that God exercise wrath on sin. Why? Because He is a just God. He is a holy God. Something had to be done with sin in order for God to be glorified. And so what did God do? He sent His Son, His only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross to make us right with God. Now look at... Verse 18 again. I want to reread the part which I've already read. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. Jesus' priesthood was God's idea. We all know John 3.16, right? Probably everybody could stand up and quote it. If I called on Al Reyna this morning, he could pop up and give it. But relax, Al, I'm not going to do it. Just relax. He could do it in Spanish and I wouldn't know the difference if he got it wrong. But we do not pay attention sometimes to what follows. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God wants us to be saved. Now, here's the statement, and this won't take long. I spent most of the time on the question of what do we need to be saved from. It, on the surface, it seems, we need to be saved from our sin. But more importantly, we need to be saved from the wrath of God. That's what we need to be saved from. Our salvation depends on the continuing work of Christ not just his past work or some decision which I made in the past. Isn't that the way we normally view salvation? There was a a remembered moment in my past. In my case, it was in January of 1958. I heard the gospel as Angel Martinez preached the gospel from the pulpit of the Cherokee Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. The Lord had been speaking to my heart through the witness of my parents, through the witness of my Sunday school teachers, but it was as he preached the gospel clearly and simply, I heard the gospel, and I gave my life to Jesus. Now, the tendency is to think, that's when I was saved. But understand, salvation is something that's forever, friend. It's something that's now. It's something tomorrow. Our salvation is not a static thing. Thank God, it is dynamic. And God is continuing to save me. Why? Because He loved me. And how? Through the continuing work of Jesus, serving as my intercessor. My salvation and your salvation, our salvation, is as secure as Christ's priesthood is indestructible. Now, I want to say that again. Our salvation is as secure as Jesus' priesthood is indestructible. That's why we needed a different kind of priesthood. That's why the Aaronic priesthood didn't cut it. We needed a perfect priest. Jesus was God and is God. We need someone who doesn't die. Because with the death of the priest, can you imagine? I noticed yesterday that I think President Bush was having a colonoscopy. Is that true? I just seemed to read that somewhere yesterday between Santo Domingo and El Paso. And then I hope he came out all right. I know that he during that period he was under anesthesia. He had assigned that... Vice President Cheney would be the acting executive, correct? Could you imagine? Do you remember when? A sort, certainly, some of you are old enough to remember when President Kennedy was assassinated. All the scrambling and the concern that went on about who's in charge here and, and the need to get President Johnson inaugurated—it was incredible. But can you imagine what would have happened when the High Priest died? When he died? There had to be quickly the ordaining of another. But in this case, this does not have to happen. Why? Because if anyone sins, according to 1 John 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, an intercessor with the Father, our helper, our comforter. It's the same word Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. We have an advocate with the Father. What is His purpose? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And what does He do? He pleads for us. He intercedes for us. What does He pray for in addition to our salvation? He also prays, and let's look one last time at Hebrews chapter 7. He also prays that we might draw near to God through Him. Let's read verse 25 once more. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. The verb translated draw near means those who keep on drawing near to God through him. He is our intercessor. We need to habitually draw near to God. I'm not talking about being saved in the sense of being justified from sin as we were when we put our faith in the Lord. That's already occurred. But we need to habitually draw. And if we're not drawing near, let me say this, without any desire to put any guilt that's false on anybody present. But if we are not in the habit of drawing near, if it's not your desire to draw near to God regularly, then you'd better evaluate the level of your salvation or if it really exists anyway. Because God works in us to move us in the direction of Himself. I've already mentioned that the wrath to come is great. We know from John five twenty four that it's not just those who believed in Jesus who are going to be raised from the dead. Are you aware of that? Did you know everybody's going to be raised from the dead? Those who have not received Christ are going to be raised from the dead? And in this case, Jesus will assume the role of judge. Not because that's his primary role, but because that's one thing that God has called him to do. He will judge those who are not in Christ. And they will experience eternal destruction in their bodies. Their body and soul, both, will be eternally destroyed. What a horrible thought. What a terrible thing to think. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 the writer poses a very significant question. This is the question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Is this a great salvation? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself? That God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might be made right God, are you here this morning and you are outside the grace of God? As I have talked this morning, we've looked at what the Scripture has to say. Have you sensed that you are separated by your sin from God? Does it concern you that because you're separated from Him, you experience in a lesser degree the wrath of God now because of the consequences of your sin? But not only that, you face an eternity Of having your soul and body destroyed by God and His wrath. Does that concern you? Well, then the good news is that Christ says, come to me. He is saying to you this morning, come to me. He is saying, if you will come to me, I will defend you. Not just for the rest of your life and this life, but forever as I intercede for you. He is saying, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Please bow your head. Once you come to Him today, He loves you. Think of the magnitude of His love for you. How He has died for you. And now He lives for you. If you will merely give your life to Him. And that's no mere thing. That's a poor choice of words. It's a big thing. Because it means transferring the control of your life from yourself to Him. Do you want to do that today? Tell Jesus that. Tell Him that you want to give Him control of your life. Thank Him for dying for your sin. And then ask Him to forgive you of your sin. If you prayed that prayer today, He heard and He answered. And He has come to indwell you. And He will live to intercede for you forever. Amen.